Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Greetings, fellow time travellers. Uh, before we set off on another journey through space and time together, it's a big thank you to all who show their support for this podcast series that Paul and I do together uh, by signing up to my patreon.com site. It's the finances from there that uh, make everything else possible. So if you're already a contributor and a member, thank you. If you're not yet and you'd like to become a member, here's how it works. Every week you get the chance to take part in an exclusive As Live question and answer session with me. You ask questions and I answer them. We cover everything. History and archaeology, obviously, but philosophy, travel, the state of the nation, you name it. It's People ask anything and everything and it's fascinating as it goes on. The conversation becomes ever more nuanced. Uh, we do competitions with prizes. Anyway, I think, and I think a lot of people agree with me that it's a it's a great community of like-minded interested people so if you want to join go to patreon.com find me by name tick all the boxes part with a little bit of cash and become a member hope to see you there okay now it's time to get back to the matter in hand which is the podcast so strap yourselves into the time machine as we set off on the next stop on my love letter to the world recorder microphone action Suitors come calling at her door. The first and most powerful is King Philip II of Spain. Good Queen Bess turns him down. Rebuffed, angry and determined to fight for his religion, he declares war. Clad in armour, dressed in white and rousing her troops at Tilbury, Bess declares, let tyrants fear. In this moment, she makes her memory immortal. And England, England... Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil. In last week's episode we travelled back in time to Spain in the mid-1500s to ask questions about compassion and what it means to be human and alive. Where are we this week? Morning, Paul. Uh, well, this week's episode uh, has another large and threatening presence, courtesy of Spain. Step forward, King Philip II of Spain and his Spanish Armada. The date is the 9th of August, 1588, and we're at Tilbury Fort on the banks of the River Thames, as good Queen Bess, Elizabeth I, delivers a speech that pulls England together, cements her reputation, and in some ways marks nothing less than the birth of nationality. We're at Tilbury Fort, as it was, and to some extent it's still there, Tilbury Fort on the Thames in London, United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. And it's big themes, as usual. So, you know, it's taking in events in 
in Spain and thinking in Spain and something to do with the continuing rollout of the consequences of the Reformation, the rivalry and the clash between Catholicism and Protestantism. Uh, basically, the two words to remember are Spanish Armada. Spanish Armada, it, it's, it's always been close to my heart because I made a television documentary years ago for, for Irish television. It was about the last treasure ship of the Spanish Armada. It was a galleass, which is a sort of a cross between a, a, a sail ship and a, and a galley, you know, rowed by oarsmen. Uh, so this galleass called the Girona had been involved in the Armada, had been full of wealthy men anyway, uh, and then it sank in the general vicinity of the Giant's Causeway in Northern Ireland. And then I went and spoke to, amongst others, a Belgian diver called Robert Stenui, who in the 1960s found the Galleas Girona and brought all the treasure up from it, a fortune in gold. And so because I had that kind of intimate insight into you know a single vessel of the Armada and what befell that vessel and obviously the human beings aboard, it kind of burned its way into my consciousness. It, it stopped being just a, a mythical the Spanish Armada and became about a few people that I could visualise and empathise with their plight. So I've for long been very close to the Spanish Armada as a, as a legend. But to get to the specifics of, of where we are in this um, love letter to the world, here's the thing, being British Isles has always worked well for the inhabitants thereof. That degree of separation from the larger continent of Europe, but that, that separation, those relatively few miles of, of North Sea that, that separate one from t'other, has in the main worked well for the British. And the story of the British Isles is very much a product of us having been separate from the main. And although obviously we've been we've been separate from mainland Europe for about eight thousand years <laughs> since the, since that since the apron strings were cut from the from the mother continent, you could say it really only began to crystallise as a notion in the Tudor period under the pen of William Shakespeare. He, he had a great deal to do with it, and the attitude of the Tudor family of kings and queens and good Queen Bess in particular. Queen Elizabeth I. There was a real, there was a real coming together of a sense of what it meant to be apart. Shakespeare in Richard II, one of the history plays, into the mouth of John of Gaunt, Shakespeare puts those lines about England being the royal throne of kings, this sceptred isle, this fortress built by nature for herself, fortress, you know, something protected against infection and the hand of war, this precious stone set in the silver sea, which serves it in the office of a wall or as a moat defensive to a house. So Shakespeare's really, really underlining and, 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 and drawing a line, literally and metaphorically, around an idea. And what was he doing? Obviously, patriotism is there. He's urging love of country, which for, for Shakespeare was love of England. But he was also sucking up. William Shakespeare was all about sucking up to royalty, 
because he needed patronage. You know, he's a businessman and he needed money and he needed their support to live the life he lived and put on his plays and so on. So he was he was earnestly sucking up to the Tudors. And he was he was helping the the Tudor house, the Tudor line, establish a unity and a and a dynasty. A dynasty. I always get caught between those two pronunciations. A dynasty and a nation. He was he was he was in the business of of helping the Tudors forge an idea because when Shakespeare was writing, the Tudor royal family, it was an upstart house. They had come from pretty much nowhere. They were in the eyes of many, they had been usurpers to the English throne. The first of them was King Henry the Seventh, Henry Tudor, and he seized the throne famously on Bosworth Field. Another moment made immortal by Shakespeare in Richard III. So they hadn't been around for so very, very long. You've got Henry VII and obviously you've got Henry VIII and then you've got his son Edward who doesn't last long and then there's Mary and then there's Elizabeth. So by the time that William Shakespeare was sucking up to Queen Elizabeth, you know, could have gone either way for them. They weren't so deeply established. But by the time Shakespeare wrote Richard II, that sceptre dial stuff, Elizabeth, however, had been on the throne for 40 years. And she had awoken to, and you might say that the population of England had awoken to, by that time, the idea of nation and nationhood. We take it for granted, nation states and all of the rest of it, but like everything else, that idea has to come from somewhere. To some extent, earlier in the story of the of the royal houses of Europe, they were estates, landed estates, rather than states. It, it was really all about a dominant family gathering together and trying to keep control of as much land and territory as it could. So they were estates, really. And that transition into the idea of a, a, a nation-state that you would have to say, by definition, also implies ownership by the people as well as the monarch. Slightly different nuanced idea. This idea of a nation that we take for granted, like all ideas, it has to, it has to occur and be pushed by someone. And you know, maybe others would say that uh, other, other nations were established earlier by other people. But there's no doubting that what, what Elizabeth was doing and what, what, say, William Shakespeare was aiding and abetting was this idea of England as somewhere apart and somewhere that belongs to all of us, which, which would be to say that the people that she was addressing and that we belong to it. You know, England is ours. England belongs to the English. And the English belong to England. And the embodiment, the living embodiment of that is Queen Elizabeth. And so that's the, that's the context, that's the, the world in which Shakespeare was writing. Now, we're talking about the Spanish Armada. We're talking as well about a moment that unfolded at Tilbury Fort on the 9th of August, 1588. Elizabeth was 54 when she came to Tilbury Fort on the Thames. And, you know, that's, that's a fair age for the 16th century. It's impressive in all sorts of ways. 
that she was able to maintain that authority and that control. There was a long sustained campaign to make her beloved in the eyes of the people. Good Queen Bess was a, you know, that's the, that's the creation of some public relations guy somewhere. It's, I don't think it's really what the people instinctively chose to call their queen. I think it's what they were encouraged to call her, to establish her in everyone's mind's eye as a kind of a, a mother a mother of the nation and so on and someone with with whom you could imagine a, a degree of familiarity like she was a member of the family you know dear old Bess all seems a bit unlikely really by August 1588 it was about a year and a half since she had sanctioned the execution of her uh, dear old cousin Mary Queen of Scots the axe fell on the neck of Mary Queen of Scots after 19 years of imprisonment She'd been held as Elizabeth's prisoner to stop contemplating usurping Elizabeth's position on the throne. So she'd been 19 years in the clink. A year and a half before the whole adventure involving the Spanish Armada, Elizabeth had sanctioned the final solution to the Mary problem and she was beheaded in Fotheringay Castle in Northamptonshire. So it's important to remember that for all that Shakespeare and others were pushing this idea that Elizabeth was a beloved figure. And she certainly did have her supporters, and there certainly would have been those amongst the common populace that held her in high regard, but she also had her haters. Why was she so scared of Mary Queen of Scots? Well, as I say, there were those who hated Elizabeth. And I mentioned at the top of this the Reformation. So there was abiding antipathy between Catholicism and Protestantism. Henry VIII had broken England away from, from the Church of Rome and had established the Church of England. And the, the waves of, of, of Reformation and, and antipathy between the two faiths and the wars of religion kept rumbling around Europe for, you know, for the longest time. So there was that element to it, because Elizabeth was a Protestant queen sitting on the throne of England, and France and, and others were Catholic. So there was daggers drawn there, and, and there was also opportunity for exploiting situations politically. Henry broke with the Church of Rome as part of his campaign to divorce his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, who was Catholic. And of course, everyone was Catholic, up until that point, including Henry VIII. Henry VIII was a devout Catholic. And then he broke with the Church of Rome. And in his head, to him, the Church of England was, was Catholic in all but name, except that he was the head of it instead of the Pope. To his dying day, he regarded his faith as, as Catholic in nature, just not necessarily in practice. So he broke with and divorced Catherine of Aragon. But in the eyes of, of Rome, in the eyes of the papacy, and in the eyes of Catholic monarchs, it wasn't possible for him to be divorced. Elizabeth was born to his second wife, Anne Boleyn. And for those who didn't recognise that second marriage, or indeed any of Henry's subsequent marriages, you know, the six wives of Henry VIII and all of that, for those Catholics that didn't recognise the legality of the divorce, nor the legality of the marriage to Anne Boleyn, it meant that the, any offspring, which is to say Elizabeth, were illegitimate. So in, in the eyes of those, it suited to be offended by Elizabeth, her 
perceived illegitimacy, her bastard status, that was a great weapon, you know, that could be used philosophically and legally and politically against her. You know, so in the eyes of those that the notion suited, she was simply illegitimate. She couldn't sit on the throne. She wasn't the rightful queen. One of her, her staunchest opponent, her, her most outspoken critic, if you like, was the Catholic King Philip II of Spain. Now, bear in mind that Philip II of Spain had been married to Elizabeth's half-sister, Mary. After Henry died, he was succeeded by his young son, Edward, who was quite frail and didn't last long. He died. Edward was then succeeded by Mary, who was Henry's daughter by Catherine of Aragon, his first wife. So she was both legitimate and she was also Catholic. When she died, she was succeeded by Elizabeth, daughter of Anne Boleyn, Henry's second wife. Elizabeth was Protestant and illegitimate as far as Catholics were concerned. So it, it meant that Elizabeth's position was not secure and many people who were opposed to her being queen at all. And Philip II of Spain was certainly one of those. He had been married. He was married to Mary. But then Mary died. When Elizabeth ascended to the throne as a Protestant, Philip asked Elizabeth to marry him. Right? He was trying to collect the set at that point. And as a condition of his proposal, he wanted Elizabeth to reject her Protestantism and, and join the, the Mother Church of Rome. So he wanted her to, you know, to convert to Catholicism, and she refused to do that. So she rebuffed him. I mean, Elizabeth rebuffed. She turned down every suitor. But quite a big deal, turning down Philip II of Spain. Philip's father was Charles V of Spain, who was Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, and from Charles V, Philip had inherited not just the Kingdom of Spain, but also the colonies in America, in the Americas, and the Spanish Netherlands. So he was a serious, he was a serious figure, and she had, she had knocked him back. Mary died in 1558, succeeded by Elizabeth, and as I say, Philip offered to marry, make an honest woman of, of Elizabeth, but. Elizabeth understood. She was she was astute, and she knew that if she had married anyone, Philip II of Spain or anyone else, under the the mores and morals of the time, she would have had to submit to her husband. So, she would have surrendered power. She would have been in second place to her husband, and being astute, Elizabeth just wasn't prepared to do that, and so she she reconciled herself to remaining single for the entirety of her reign and around that was built the notion of the Virgin Queen. It also created all of the, the most significant problems for the House of Tudor which was that, that there was no heir. She couldn't and didn't produce an heir. So uh, Elizabeth has spent her, her reign turning down everyone, every man that offered to marry her and become her consort or king alongside her. So when Elizabeth sanctioned the execution of the Catholic Mary Queen of Scots. In the eyes of many, Philip II of Spain included the legitimate 
heir to the English throne. That execution was an opportunity, a political opportunity for Philip. Because here was, you know, the legitimate Catholic heir to the throne had been executed by the illegitimate Protestant so-called queen. So that, that gave him all of the political ammunition that he needed to declare that once and for all he was entitled to deal with the, the spiritual wrong that was Queen Elizabeth I of England. So he puts together the Spanish Armada. In May 1588, this, what he called the Great and Joyous Armada, 140-odd ships, set sail from Lisbon in Portugal. By the end of... There's, nothing happens fast in those days. Towards the end of July, so it's you know all of a month and a half later, the two navies, which is to say the Spanish Armada and the English Navy, have their first clash. They, they, you know, they come together in the English Channel. The English are led by Francis Drake, and it's, it's inconclusive. The, the two forces separate, and we go into a kind of a limbo at that point. Later that month, the Spanish Armada is anchored by Calais in the English Channel. Uh, 25 miles away from Calais at Dunkirk, that everyone's heard of because of the, you know, the adventures in the Second World War, the army that Philip had ordered to come together, ready to cross the Channel and invade invade the Thames, invade London. They're sitting ready at Dunkirk. They're in transports, like landing craft, ready to sail across the English Channel and fight the land war to depose Elizabeth. That landing force is commanded by the Duke of Parma, Alexander Farnese. Now, they're waiting because they are expecting to be escorted. These landing craft are expecting to be escorted across the English Channel by the Spanish Armada, all the way to the Thames, up into London. To land, invade, and you know, and do the job of of defeating the English army and deposing Elizabeth the First, so that Philip can polish that throne with his own bottom. So the Armada is like a protection force. Yeah, they're there. It, well, it's all part of a. It's a combined attack on England, uh, but they're there. You know, one of their principal tasks is to escort the army across the English Channel until they make safe landing. The English attack them where they're sitting in Calais, they sail ships across and set some ships on fire, fire ships, that the prevailing wind takes in amongst the Spanish fleet. And many of the Spanish fleet catch fire. So this is, this is disruptive. In order to get away from that you know, very dangerous situation, the, the, the surviving Spanish ships, of which there are still many, they slip anchor to get away, you know, to get away from the fire and to regroup somewhere else. But as is famously, as the legend of the Spanish Armada has it, a storm kicks up just when the Spanish don't need it and just when the Spanish are most exposed to the elements. And the storm scatters them. Right? It's the Spanish Armada that are at sea and exposed and, and take the brunt of the storm. It's subsequently known as the Protestant wind, as though God was on the side of the Protestant force and decided to scatter the Catholic Spanish fleet. In trying to get away from the storm now, what most of the Spanish Armada has to do is sail around, circumnavigate the British Isles anti-clockwise up the North Sea, past Scotland, around the top of Scotland and past Ireland. Talk about the long way around to try and get back to Spain. Now, only half of the ships 
survive the storm and that circumnavigation. And only half of the men ever get back to Spain. I mentioned the Galeas Girona. That was one of the ships loaded with wealthy Spanish noblemen and their treasure. It, it, it's one of those, one of the many that comes to grief off the, off the Antrim coast of, of Ireland. Uh, and, and, the, and the problem that all the ships have is that they, they, can't, they can't really put into land very confidently, not, not even necessarily in Catholic Ireland, because they're still foreign. It's dangerous for anyone as aliens landing on, you know, on, on uh, sovereign soil elsewhere. So they basically just have to keep at sea and they all come to grief or the, or the vast majority of them come to grief. So this idea that uh, cements itself later on is that this Protestant wind blew and scattered the Spanish fleet. And in that period of time, in those days and weeks, the, the English... There's no GPS, there's no satellite navigation. They, they don't know for certain what's happened to the Spanish Armada. We do. History tells us exactly what happened. But for the English waiting, there's an army 20,000 strong waiting to defend London. And they don't know. It's, it's not like they're listening to the radio and getting updates on what's happened to the Spanish Armada. So they, they just have to wait in the expectation that the invasion might still come. As far as they know, with or without the covering fleet, the landing craft full of thousands of Spanish soldiers might come anyway. They might depart Dunkirk and come and get the job done. So it's in that it's in that period of uncertainty and considerable tension when, as far as the English are concerned, there might still be everything to play for, that Elizabeth comes to Tilbury. God, what a backstory. It's taken so long to get here. But it's in those circumstances that Elizabeth comes to Tilbury to galvanise and to straighten and strengthen the backbone of the 20,000 strong English army that are waiting to, if necessary, defend London. And it's the moment that makes her immortal. And it makes, it makes England England, is the truth of it. She turns up. I mean, if you imagine the scene, they're all there. All the soldiers are there. And the Queen comes. Now, in those days, you didn't see the you didn't see the monarch very often necessarily. You could live and die without knowing for certain what the monarch looked like. But here she appears among them, riding a white horse, clad in white, with a white armoured breastplate that she's borrowed from some suit of armour somewhere. She's got white feathers in her hair, so, so she appears as this kind of white angel, goddess of war, apparition, and. Furthermore, she doesn't come with a great bodyguard. You know, she doesn't come surrounded by hundreds of armed men. She comes with a tiny escort to underline her confidence in her people and in their love of her. And so she comes and dismounts and she moves amongst her people, which is quite the PR moment. She comes among them and then she gets up on high ground somewhere and she starts to speak to them. And she underlines, she, she tells them why she's come almost alone and why it doesn't bother her that there she is so exposed amongst all of these potentially dangerous fighting men. Because there's rumours flying that the Spanish have infiltrated the English army and that there, that there could be assassins just, just in there mingling with the English soldiers. But she's, So she starts to speak... And she says, my loving people, that's how she begins her address, my loving people, we, that's the royal we, 
have been persuaded by some that are careful of our safety to take heed how we commit ourselves to armed multitudes for fear of treachery but I assure you I do not desire to live to distrust my faithful and loving people let tyrants fear so she so she says she's you know she has come among them to live and die among you all to lay down for my God and for my kingdom and my people my honour and my blood even in the dust it's good stuff historians generally speaking are content to accept that she pretty much penned that speech herself that it's her own words spoken there and then you know rather than any notion that that she didn't really say anything of any great note and that subsequently other more impressive words were put into her mouth at some subsequent point as part of the building of the legend but on the contrary historians are are generally disposed to accept that she actually said that there and then which is impressive again I can't really not quote the most probably the most famous lines of all from the speech which is to say I know I have the body of a weak feeble woman but I have the heart and stomach of a king and a king of England too that's good stuff So there she is, in white, 54, you know, decades into her reign, and she's embodying Good Queen Bess, the Virgin Queen, in all her white purity. And she's embodying the notion of England itself, a place apart, something that is entire unto itself, separate from any and all. And so there in that moment, On the 9th of August, 1588, Elizabeth establishes, crystallises, makes real the very idea of England as a nation. England as England. A queen and an emperor. Two powerful leaders with lives running parallel to each other. But separated by thousands of miles, they have little contact or concern for each other. But as the long reigns draw to a close, the paths of the people they rule over are about to converge. A seismic shock that realigns the fates and sets the world on a different path. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. I'd love to see you there. You can check out the Instagram account that's called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, tell your friends about it, get them listening, and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar, CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. The post-production is by Squared Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project 
there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.